Are you ready? I have. I'm really proud of this one. It is a very okay. deep cut. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Welcome to another installment of Great Moments in Duet History, our sub-podcast of Blind Duet. I'm Tom Mayer. I'm Ben Kahn. Ben and I take turns choosing a great duet from the entire history of recorded music to discuss, and we don't share what it is ahead of time. So it's my turn this episode. Ben has no idea who or what I brought. Are you ready? Let's go. Ben, how much do you know about traditional Cuban music? An embarrassingly little amount. Okay. Well, don't feel too bad. Me too. I had to do a I lot. Mean, of- I know about like Buena Vista Social Club. I know okay. about them. Okay. Right. And I know uh, some uh, of like the rhythms of Cuban music. Okay. I studied some of that a little bit. Uh, as far as Cuban artists, like I said, not that much. But I do really enjoy that music. It's just not something I've ever really had the time to dig deep into. I'm exactly the same way. So let me let me give you some backstory here. In 1997, there was an American producer named Rylan Cooter and a British record label called World Circuit. And they hatched this really ambitious plan to record an album in Cuba. You look like you already know what you're what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about, but Rylan Cooter goes by Rye Cooter. Yes. And he's he's a very famous uh music producer and he even does like music direction for television shows and stuff too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So I'm glad you- So I know a little bit about him. You know the cast of characters a little bit. Yeah. So him and this record label, there was an executive at World Circuit Records named Nick Gold. And they hatched this really ambitious plan to record an album in Cuba that would feature Cuban musicians and Malian musicians from Mali. And it would be this huge- cross-cultural collaboration. What's really interesting is that Cuban Mali are actually, their musical traditions are connected a little bit. Obviously, of course, like African diaspora, the, there's Afro-Cuban rhythms are all over Cuban music. But when a communist government was elected in Mali, uh, Fidel Castro went to visit and the Malian government was like promoting Cuban music of like, this is this is hot shit. Everyone should be playing this. So Cuban style bands were popping up in Mali and it was like this really interesting fusion. Anyway, they had, they had put all the pieces in place for these Malian musicians to travel to Cuba and create this cross-cultural record with Cuban musicians. Pretty cool idea. Except- yeah, I had no idea about that. Except- just days before the musicians from Mali were set to fly to Havana, they couldn't get their visas. Their visas got lost in the mail and just never showed up. So Thanks, USPS. Thank, exactly. <laughs> Even um, though definitely is not USPS. Definitely not. So this, this guy, Nick Gold, the, the executive from World Circuit, called up Ry Cooter and told him, hey, when we fly into Cuba, it's just going to be us. No one from Mali is coming. And Cooter basically said like, hey, let's just show up anyway and we will see what happens. They get there and uh, Cooter, of course, had to fly through Mexico because there was this, uh, there's a formal embargo against Cuba at the time in 97. Actually, is there still a, like in 2022? No, I, I, I think you can go there now. Yeah, I think I'm not sure. that Obama allowed us to go there. That sounds familiar. And then who knows what happened after that. So um, they, all, they all arrive 
And they work with a local band leader and a folk revivalist named Juan de Marcos Gonzalez to get musicians into the studio and record this record. Uh, when you hear folk revivalist, Ben, what does that mean to you? What is that? There's like an era of that that I'm trying to remember who those artists are. Yeah. Okay. Um, so basically what it meant for this project was that the musicians this dude knew, they were in their prime in the 50s. Oh, hold on. Rolly has to walk through. Excuse me. Yeah, I saw the dog. He just opened the door. That's the quiet one. Yeah. She's so polite about it. <laughs> also, I need, I wanted to rewind and ask you, um, we've, you've listened to some Malian music before, yeah? I think there's some artists that I really like that I showed you. It's a very cool guitar style. How would you, yeah. to your ear, how would you describe it? There's not a lot of chords. It's a lot of arpeggiated, rhythmic style. That's what I would say. If I, I had to just deduce it to something as <laughs> sure. simple as that. Well, I remember listening to an album with you of an artist from Mali and you were, your ear like picked up on the guitar sound. You're like, hey, I think he's, I think he's muting his strings, like putting paper behind it or something to get that really staccato. Um, that yeah, staccato yeah, sound. yeah. I've seen some stuff like that. Um, not from Mali. He's actually from Benin, but uh, guitarist Lionel Loweke, he was the first guy that I saw in a jazz context using the uh, paper or tissue paper in his strings, like really close to the, to the uh, bridge to get like a different kind of a muted sound. Well, what he does is he makes the string vibrate in a different way, right? This is without the paper, right? So when I put the paper, so it makes the string vibrate different. really interesting um all right so juan de juan de marcos gonzalez is a folk revivalist in cuba what that basically meant for this project is that the musicians this dude knew were in their prime back in the 50s they were all like 70 and 80 and pushing 90 years old he puts this band together and that was it half of them were young dudes half of them were really in their 70s and 80s um, but they were big names in Cuba. They had been in the 50s. Um, they just hadn't been in their prime for 30 or so years. Um, I'm trying to think of like what that would, what the New Orleans equivalent of that would be. Like if you, if you roped Fats Domino back into the studio at the end of his life, you know, like someone who is this titan of, yeah, yeah. of pop music. Yeah, maybe Fats Domino is a good example of that. I was going to say, because like not Alan Tucson, because he was, he was in his prime until like the day he died, I yeah. would say. Yeah. Not to say Fats Domino wasn't, but I know that I know I get what you're saying. He he uh it's like if he yeah. had disappeared for 30 years and then Right, 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 right. Yeah, because that's not those aren't the best examples either one. I don't know. New Orleans guys just tend to age well. Keep playing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so this was 97. So hip hop was well established at this point. EDM mm -hmm. was coming to prominence all over the world. And now there's this motley crew of septuagenarians and they're recording a traditional Cuban folk album. Uh, and the recording session, apparently it felt a little bit like a club, like the musicians and the producers would just hang out all day. 
They would drink rum and coffee and they would make music. So Cooter decided that the name of the project should be associated with a famous social club in Havana. Ben, you you said it earlier. Yeah, Buena Vista Social Club. So this is that is how Buena Vista Social Club came around. It was this misconnection with these Malian musicians. Suddenly they scrambled to put a band together and they just captured lightning in a bottle. And let's, well, hold on. Let's uh, take a second and listen to some Buena Vista Social Club. Just listen to that first track. I don't know if it's pronounced Chan Chan or Chan Chan. All right, that's good. You get the you get the sauce. I know. I was just really enjoying it. I know it's amazing. It's a great album. So that something about something about that vocal style from Cuba. It's like just so emotional. It just like even though I don't speak Spanish that well, whenever I hear uh, Cuban music, especially vocals, it just like hits me in the heart. I'm the same way. It's so that that track is so full of emotion. The whole album is. Um, and there's tons of little like cute nuggets. First of all, if anyone wants to learn more about Buena Vista Social Club, there's a couple of documentaries. There's like tons of news stories that the guy who ended up singing most of the album or like a couple of really key songs on the album, he wasn't there originally. He wasn't one of the first people that um, mm-hmm. Juan de Marcos Gonzalez brought into the studio. And Ray Cooter said, hey, we need, you know, like we're missing something. We're missing that like beautiful almost balladeer style. Whoever else was there singing vocals kind of had this like sharp, kind of overwhelming sound to his 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 timbre. And so they just went and found someone, like a, another one of these older musicians who were, who was hot shit in the 50s and 60s. And uh, when he, he recorded a bunch of songs on this album and then it totally relaunched his career. It relaunched all their careers, which I will which I will get into here in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll get into it right now. The short story is that this album went insane. It has gone double platinum. It's included in Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time at 260. Not bad. It won a Grammy and it relaunched the touring careers of the artists that recorded the album. Uh, remember, the U.S. had an official embargo against Cuba or a, an official embargo of Cuba at the time. They still ended up all playing Carnegie Hall and got a standing ovation. So, oh, there's more, there's more. Solo albums and more tours followed. The next decade was an incredibly successful ride for the Buena Vista Social Club. And so what made the album so popular? Frankly, I don't know. And kind of no one knows. Everyone involved was like, we just captured this magic, this essence. And we didn't know that there was a market for it, essentially. Um, I don't, we can't really remember. We were seven years old. We need to ask mm-hmm. our parents or something. What do you well, think? I, I think, did you watch the Grammys? This most yeah, recent Grammys? Bit. Did you see uh, John Baptiste's oh, speech? Absolutely. Uh, now, we're not, we promise we're not a just John Baptiste fanboy podcast. <laughs> I guess. We can be. We can partially be, but he said something in his speech uh, I'll just paraphrase. I don't want to misquote him, but it was something about there is no best uh, music. Just come and art just comes to people 
when they need it the most. And I think that's probably what happened with this record too. You know, it's, it's amazing, yes, but why in 97 was a Cuban record so popular? It just is what people needed at that time, I guess. I think Wise. the embargo, you know, maybe had something to do with it as well. And just people not being able to have access to that culture probably had something to do with it as well. It went, it was top five in all all over Europe and in the US, it, it climbed the charts. And in Cuba, what's most interesting is it started this whole revivalist movement and and it became really important, a very important album in Cuba itself, which is really cool. But yeah. We are forgetting about some important people. What about the original Malian musicians who never made it to Cuba? That's true. I was wondering about them. 12 years after Buena Vista Social Club caught fire, Nick Gold decided to do right by the original idea and set up a recording session with the original guitarist from the Buena Vista Sessions and three of the original Malian artists slated to be there back in 97. And they met up in Spain and recorded an album uh, called Afrocubism. Mm. And they, they finally made it work. Uh, and so let me send you a track from Afrocubism. So that, that first track on Buena Vista Social Club, Chan Chan or Chan Chan, not totally sure how to pronounce it. That became the unofficial calling card. That was, that's by far their most popular song. It's very emblematic of their sound. And as you can see on Afrocubism, the first track is literally titled Mali Cuba. So I don't know if they're going for the same energy, but give it a listen. Yeah. What do you think? That was amazing. Give I me think, a little, uh, um, what, what stands out to you? A couple of things. Number one, fortunately, I'm listening to this in pretty good headphones, which I think is is helpful because the recording quality of this is amazing. Like it's so clear, but still has a really great warmth, uh, really great character. It doesn't seem like it's too clean for for what the instruments are, uh, but still very clear. You can hear all the instruments really, really well. Um, I think the panned guitars is kind of cool. You can tell that it's like one side is a Cuban guitar and one side is Mali guitar. Mm -hmm. And the kind of interesting parallel of those two and the similarities of how they're, they, they're similar in their style or in their, they're similar in what they're playing. Mm -hmm. However, they're very different stylistically and tonally. The tone is very different. Um, the marimba is really, really nice. Yeah, just, balafone, technically. Is it a balafone? Yeah. Because I didn't hear the rattle underneath that a balafone usually has with like the gourds that rattle. I think it, I'm 99% sure it's a balafone. Okay, well, the malleted instrument, whatever yep. that, whatever, whichever malleted instrument it is, sounds amazing. Uh, and it's sitting in a really great place in the mix, which I really like as well, because I know how difficult that instrument is to mic and how difficult that instrument is to even have it in tune. <laughs> <laughs> I had the the honor and fortunate experience of playing with a balafone player for a number of years. Uh, and it was always fun to figure out if it was in 
E or E flat on any given day. Um, and just like when we'd show up to the gig, just seeing the the engineer just look at look at us like, how am I going to mic that thing? You know, <laughs> but but yeah, uh, that's amazing. Also think like I wanted to say this earlier too. Um, and it's not really off subject, but I think something like when I listen to this, even though it's Mali and Cuba, it really sounds like New Orleans in so many ways to me. And I think that like we as New Orleans natives or people who grew up in New Orleans around all this different kind of music, we have a really unique or at least interesting perspective on on music and culture because our music is such a blend of so many different cultures. Even though this is not New Orleans music, there's still so many similar elements. We're just music of Louisiana in general. Cause I like I never realized I in fact honestly till just now when I was listening to it and like one of my favorite instruments, I love the Guero so much. Like I would love that gig. I I I don't know if I'm qualified for it, but I would love the Guero gig of just like playing that rhythm all night. And like I just love I feel like that that sound is so essential. And then I started to think while I was listening to it just now, the washboard is like kind of the same thing. Absolutely. And I never thought about that as a washboard and a guiro kind of serving the same purpose. And, you know, I think like Zydeco music or some other, you know, Louisiana or New Orleans native music that that implements the washboard uh, and how that and the guiro are kind of serving the same purpose with the washboard maybe being a little... Well, now, especially I think with some people, it becomes more upfront than the guiro. The guiro is like really back in the pocket. Like I've never seen a guiro player like step out. Right, you know, right. They don't show out a whole lot. Yeah, they don't show out a whole lot. Whereas I've seen, I've seen a number of washboard players like get a solo and like really get to like shred on the washboard essentially. <laughs> what a um, treat. So yeah, like just, I love that. I love how, how, how familiar it, sounds more of like an emotional standpoint i guess than like a sonic standpoint even mm-hmm. it's very comforting yeah um all right so the epilogue i think is the most interesting part of this story in stark contrast to the buena vista social club afrocubism was not an outright success it might not have even been a success the album went nowhere first of all i don't know if they were trying to to bill it as the follow up to the Buena Vista Social Club or whatever. Um, But it did not do well at all. And apparently the musicians eventually all got on each other's nerves. Mm. They were, they had a a few tour dates booked and like their, just their work styles were totally off. Some of them um, like, like to get up way early. Others didn't get up until noon. You know, the, you know, the whole drill. Yeah. Yeah. Most There's a lot of guys in that band too. I think that's probably part of it too. The more, the more people you have in one in one space or like working together in a band, the more likely it is that you're going to have personalities. Here's the key. Turns out that five of the seven featured artists on the record are band leaders. They're all used to being in charge. Not a recipe gotcha. for success. Not at all. But you know what? I love that it's so imperfect and it didn't have this storybook ending. Somehow I feel like that makes this whole journey, this whole arc a little more endearing of like, yeah, we didn't get the the perfect like cinematic close up this like 
uh, the success that was promised years earlier. I think it's just okay that it kind of fizzled. And I love that everyone involved was really committed to the follow through and had the balls to go make this album uh, that there was no promise of success and it, and it delivered on that. It delivered on not being successful. Um, yeah. And, and it's okay that it was, it was just for the sake of making this long lost collaboration really. Uh, mm-hmm. that's why it's my pick for a great moment in duet history. I think this was a beautiful one. Yeah. It's really, it's really more about the story than the, the album is very cool by all means, please, everyone go check out Afrocubism. There's a lot of really interesting music in that album. Um, it's not the like super catchy one of this social club that you are used to, but it's, mm-hmm. it is so absolutely beautiful and elegant in its own right. And they made a, an amazing piece of art. So for sure, go check it out. If you think this is your kind of, your kind of steez. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up, huh? Yeah. Anything the people need to know? I guess, uh, wait, what do they need to know? Be on the lookout for the next traditional episode of Blind Duet on April 29th. Make sure to go subscribe to us on YouTube like the videos, ring the bell so you can get those notifications if you'd like. And uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram as well at Blind Duet Pod. And if you are feeling stale in your creativity or you're feeling like you just can't find the right person to collaborate, holla at us at blindduetpod at gmail.com and we will pair you with your next musical soulmate, potentially, because we're the best musical matchmakers in the game. Asterisk, only musical matchmakers in the game. Air horns right there. Yeah, air horns right there. (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all. Thank you. Follow Blind Duet on Instagram and Twitter at BlindDuetPod. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, please send a brief bio along with links to your work to blindduetpod at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Blind Duet is brought to you in part by the New Orleans Tourism and Culture Fund. We would also like to thank the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans for their support. 